This is The Healthy Sensitive, episode 32. Hello and welcome to The Healthy Sensitive, a podcast dedicated to helping introverts and highly sensitive people live their best and healthiest lives. On today's episode, I want to talk about the concept of emotional fitness. Uh, I originally wanted to talk about the idea of developing happiness, since that's sort of a hap- like a happen in buzzword, but I always find myself cringing, just a little at least, uh, at the concept of happiness on its own. I mean, it's lovely, and I certainly like it when I'm happy, and I know that when people say that they're trying to help other people develop happiness in their lives, they mean it in the most robust sense of the word. So I'm not trying to belittle anyone who's saying, hey, let's go and you know prioritize our happiness. But I do think, though, that there's a tendency, or maybe a, a risk at least, of uh, mistakenly prioritizing happiness in the sense that happiness is the only acceptable way to feel. So what I mean by that is to say that if you are any if you're feeling any emotion other than happiness, then there must be something wrong with you. And so that's part of the reason why I get a little cringe-worthy whenever people say, "Oh, let's just only talk about happiness." So instead, you know, what I wanted to talk a bit about was something a little bit bigger uh, that and that happiness is often a side effect of and that is emotional fitness so we live in a world that insists that we must always be happy we see it in commercials uh, we see it on the sitcoms that we watch or even in the movies that we you know pay money to go to the theater and see if we're doing that anymore uh, we even see it on some level and in maybe more subtle and nuanced forms in academia we're constantly talking about how to best move away from sadness and toward happiness. But you know, there are many people who have gotten suspicious about this because there's value in all the emotions on the spectrum. And Glennon Doyle in her book, Love Warriors, speaks to this tendency really beautifully when she talks about how we're encouraged in our society to hit easy buttons to wash away discomfort. So like, if you're feeling lonely, clearly there's something wrong, uh, why don't you try this cologne, and then you too will have women chasing you down the alleyway trying to, well, you know. Uh, or if you're depressed, try an antidepressant. Or food. Food's also, you know, effective. But what Doyle realized in her own personal journey was that no, if you are feeling on some occasion, or even quite often, sad or lonely, that's probably just correct. If you're sad, it's probably because life is really hard sometimes and requires sadness to greet it. If you're angry, it's probably because life is brushing up against you pretty aggressively and some primal element within you is rising to the surface to try and protect you. Whether it's called for or not, that's what it's that, that's, its, that's the purpose it's trying to serve. And so if we're feeling what Glennon Doyle calls hot loneliness, you shouldn't really be rejecting it. it. Try embracing it for the value that it can possibly provide you. 
And then my little caveat here would be maybe just don't allow yourself to get completely lost in it any more than you allow yourself to get lost in happiness. Brene Brown and her research on what it means to live, uh, so if you don't know Brene Brown, she's a researcher storyteller, that's how she identifies herself, and she has preoccupied herself with researching what she calls wholehearted living. Because there are people out there, she's discovered, who seem to have a really robust and healthy relationships, both with themselves individually, as well as with the people they love in their inner circle. So she wanted to go out and find out, all right, what are those cool, happy, peppy people doing? And she was startled with the results that she gleaned from the narratives that people were willing to convey to her. Mainly what people found, or what she was finding through their narratives, is that what brings a sense of wholehearted living is not just happiness or the perpetual search for the, you know, the feel-good vibes, but rather it's the willingness to be really vulnerable and honest, no matter the consequences to that. Which, as she said on the TED Talk stage, uh, was enough to give her a bit of a mental breakdown because... She's a tough Texan, and she had no desire to have vulnerability be the thing that came up in her research. Having said all of that, though, I also don't want to scoff at happiness as if to say, oh, well, happiness is, you know, the search or the pursuit of it or the cultivation of it is shallow, because that's not true either. That's not where I'm trying to go. I mean, people who study it and who try and help others to achieve it more often than not, are really uh, complex, nuanced individuals who are trying to the best of their ability to convey the nuance of happiness or what it means to live a happy life. So one of the examples of this is Sean Aker, a positive psychologist who studies happiness and in particular how that relates to productivity at work. And, you know, he makes the case that we have for so long in our lives, the lived our lives as though, or at least according to this equation, if I work really, really hard, I will be successful. And once I'm successful, then I will be happy. And in his research, what he's finally coming to terms with, or what he's trying to convince others to come to terms with, is, nope, we got it wrong. <laughs> Just kidding. Happy people are more productive, and productive people tend to be very successful. So we've switched it all around. It's not, I work hard to be successful and that will bring happiness. It's, if I prioritize my happiness, that will make me much more capable and much more effective in the hard work that I engage in. And that combination of happiness, productivity, creativity, is what will likely lead to success. So in his mind, it's best to first focus on what makes you come alive. Natalie Kagan is perhaps another champion of happiness, and she isn't herself a researcher, at least not in the same sense that Sean Aker is. Uh, she's not a college professor, is what I mean. Uh, Natalie Kagan and her work, she actually went through, you know, milestone after milestone in her life and achieved beyond anyone's expectations, you know, given all of the barriers that she was sort of having to contend with, she just, you know, succeeded phenomenally in all of the ways that we here in America uh, see success looking like. She was successful. She was the picture child for it. But that didn't bring her a sense of true satisfaction. If anything, it seemed to bring her anxiety, depression, frustration, isolation. 
And so she went searching furiously for some answer to the challenges she was facing. You know, why is it that I have, in a certain sense, followed the path of working really hard to, to become successful and the hopes of then having happiness? I did the thing. I worked my butt off and I am super successful. Why am I not happy? So she then stumbled into some of the same work that Sean Aker is espousing or, or you know, sharing with others and decided to try to reverse the equation for herself. And, you know, no shocking, no, no shockers here, but she did develop a, a much more robust sense of satisfaction in her life as a result of that. And she discovered on a personal level that the equation Sean Aker is trying to present is exactly right, or at least it was for her. So she built an app called Happier to help other people you know, develop happiness for themselves and share it amongst one another, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And in thinking about what it was that those I admire so much seem to have in common, instead of just either scoffing at happiness or embracing it fully, the re this is the reason why I instead want to talk about emotional fitness, because I feel like emotional fitness is a broader landscape that this conversation about happiness and satisfaction and wholehearted living and vulnerability can find can be umbrellaed under or so to speak so and I like the idea of talking about it in terms of fitness because it's a metaphor that I'm really comfortable with I'm a health coach so as a health coach I know that it takes work a tremendous amount of effort to cultivate physical fitness you know, health isn't something that just happens to you. On some level, you can have a, a general constitution of physical health, which is also true with happiness, by the way. A lot of uh, psychologists have done research on emotional wellness, and they have determined that we do all seem to have a baseline set level of happiness at our disposal, and then we can cultivate it further by working out, quote-unquote, the muscles and engaging in behaviors that optimize that happiness. Or we cannot... Uh, but for the most part, most of us do have a baseline. And the same is true with health, you know, like physical health. Some of us do win a kind of genetic lottery. You know, I, for example, won one hell of a lottery. I've got all ten fingers, all ten toes. I can walk and talk uh, as normal as I'm aware normal is. <laughs> so as far as I'm concerned, that's its own kind of miracle. And I have a constitution of health. Built into the wiring of my constitution, however, is also a nervous system that's a little bit more vigilant. I talk about this in terms of being a highly sensitive person. So in my surroundings, I pick up more data. I don't mean that I'm more perceptive. I'm certainly no Sherlock Holmes or anything of that nature. I just mean I'm easily overwhelmed by my environment if it's too chaotic. Uh, I easy, easily pick up on the emotions of others. I may not be picking up on them with perfect accuracy, but I, I'm picking up on something. And for this reason, uh, I think that's what contributes to my introversion. I, I, I love people. I love being around them, but I need a lot of downtime to recharge so that I can go out there. So that's part of my constitution. And what I realized over time in my life is in trying to ignore some of those pieces of myself and just go out there and live my life like a quote-unquote normal person. Um, I was taxing my nervous system too often. So I had to kind of figure out my constitution and then how and figure out how to support it so that I could be a very product, productive, helpful member of society. 
um, and not destroy myself in the process. So when, when we're talking about constitutions or, or, you know, coming into the world with some level of health, I'm not trying to negate the fact that some of us do have, you know, an easier time of health than others. But mostly the health that we have is the health that we cultivate ourselves. And most of that's done through behaviors. We don't just magically have the ability to go run a marathon, or at least I don't know anyone who has that capacity. We build on it. We might have a natural inclination toward running. I know this is true with sprinters at the very least. I think there's like certain number of very specific types of cells that are amenable to sprinting, and that's not the purpose of this podcast episode, so I'm not going to go there. But we have to work at it to be able to like complete these feats of of hardship. <laughs> we have to eat well every single day. We have to exercise our bodies every single day. We have to build good sleep routines every single day. These things don't just happen. We make them happen, or rather we influence their ability to happen with our behaviors. In a similar vein, we can do that with our emotional fitness. It's not like it'll be a guarantee of constant perpetual happiness. Just like if I work on eating really healthily and I exercise and I you know, do all of the things that we're supposed to do, I might increase my or improve upon my immune system, but it's not going to make me invincible to the common cold. It's not gonna make me live forever. Um, it's not even gonna stave off cancer necessarily. All it's doing is improving my chances of the best possible outcome given who I am, where I am, and the environment in which I live. Emotional fitness, as far as I'm concerned, is very similar. We can create robust emotional health, or at least we can help foster it. That's not going to protect us from depression when a loved one dies. It's not going to keep us from being angry when someone insults our character or integrity or, or whatever. It's not going to protect us from hardship, but what it can do is make us more capable of bouncing back faster. It makes us more nimble and capable of dodging things that could really slam us down for a long period of time. It makes us more aware of the things that don't really serve us and more capable of creating a life that doesn't necessitate constant recharging and instead might help actually support more of a thriving sort of life. So, well, let's talk a little bit about what that entails. What does it actually mean to be emotionally fit? What do I mean when I say that? When I'm talking about being emotionally fit, what I mean is when you get knocked down, are you able to get back up again? What I mean is, are you capable of holding up healthy boundaries with people that maybe aren't exceptionally good for you? Are you also able to open up when you need to? Are you capable of being vulnerable when you need to be vulnerable? And are you capable of being aloof when perhaps that's what's called for in that moment? Can you rise above challenges in your life and meet those challenges in your life with grace? Or are you an easy button pusher? Are you someone who's going to hide behind someone else's version of success so that you don't have to take accountability for your own life? Well, that's what this is about. 
So what is it that requ that's required to build emotional fitness? Like we know what it, what's required with physical fitness. Physical fitness requires that we have, um, you know, we exercise, we change around the muscle groups that we're using, uh, we diversify our workouts. Physical fitness requires that we eat lots of vegetables, it requires that we take our vitamins, eat our Wheaties, I mean maybe not if you're gluten intolerant, but you know what I'm saying. Um, physical fitness requires that we get enough sleep at night. These are things that are necessary for physical fitness. They're behaviors. Well emotional fitness isn't really all that different. I mean the physical and the emotional really actually are more or less the same thing. We can't, I mean, you can't get a scalpel and cut, draw a line between where our emotions stop and our body begins. It's all one thing. But I guess one is just a more subtle representation of the other. It's all one ecosystem. But I think it's easier sometimes when talking about this stuff to, you know, bracket them and organize them into boxes. So we're going to talk about the emotional box. What is it that helps us develop emotional fitness? Number one, meditation. And this one, I kid you not, if you are terrified of the woo-woo, calm down. A lot of people imagine that meditation means that you're sitting quietly in a zen state, zero thoughts popping into your brain, and you are just... Ah. as bullcaca. That's not meditation. I fell into that trap for a long time, and it was why I resisted meditation for so long. Because, I mean, I tried, and <laughs> I wasn't any good at it. My brain kept going. Meditation, though, is honestly just a willingness to sit quietly and watch your thoughts as they come up. It's not necessarily turning your thoughts off. Now, what I will say is that when you learn to watch your thoughts long enough, eventually you get bored of them, and your mind might kind of quiet down after a while. But it's just extended focus on a singular thing for a period of time. So why does meditation help? What is, a me like, what is meditation doing for us that's helping develop emotional fitness? Well, on the biophysical level, like when you're looking at it in terms of a brain scan, it actually helps build the prefrontal cortex. And for those of you who speak English and not, you know, random holistic health coach speak, <laughs> prefrontal cortex is that part of the brain that is a bit like the executive. It's the part of the brain capable of making long-term decisions. Uh, it's where willpower lives. It's the, you know, the prefrontal cortex is that part of our brain that is able to take information from, say, the amygdala, which is the emotional realm, and push, push pause for a second. So, like, if someone gets angry at you or cuts you off on the freeway, you, you might emotionally want to get a tractor and just run them over. But then the prefrontal cortex kicks in and says, yeah, I know you're angry, but they probably just didn't even see you, and you never know what's going on with their lives anyway, and oh my god, it's so not worth it, just move on. That's the prefrontal cortex. Or when you are trying to eat well, and someone offers you a cookie, and you think, oh my god, I really want the cookie. The prefrontal cortex is what comes over and says, I know you really want the cookie, and that's okay, but I think you want physical fitness more, so maybe don't eat the cookie. And that doesn't always mean the prefrontal cortex wins, but that inner dialogue, when you think of the angel and the devil, most of the time, in terms of how it works biochemically, it, the angel is your prefrontal cortex trying to speak rationally to you, and the quote-unquote devil is your, you know, primal amygdala where that's just going, No! I want it now! So meditation helps build on that part of your brain 
that is capable of pushing pause and holding still and delaying gratification. The next item that can help with fit, like emotional fitness is gratitude. Now this, a lot of people struggle with because they think, oh please, it's so like, oh let's go ahead and sing kumbaya. But in actuality, gratitude, it turns out, is perhaps one of the most powerful tools in our arsenal of health, physical and emotional. It turns out it's damn near impossible to be stressed and grateful at the same time. You can go back and forth very quickly, so you can kind of, you know, wax and wane of like, I'm really grateful to be alive, but also I kind of wish I had my leg back. I mean, you know, you can, it's not like it's per pristine and perfect. But in the second, in that instant of gratitude, stress cannot be there at the same time. So what do I mean by gratitude? How do we make a practice out of gratitude? Well, Sean Aker, as I've mentioned several times so far already, makes if we were to write down three new things every single day that we are grateful for after 21 days our brain starts to be geared toward looking for the positive instead of what geared toward the negative because i'm going to do a little tangent here usually our human brains are geared to look for what's wrong it's a survival thing you want your brain to do that on some level, because when we were out in the jungle, if we were only looking for what was good, we might have missed the saber-toothed tiger that was, you know, hunting us. So there was value in our brains constantly scanning our environment for things that were amiss or awry. It's just that in our current environment, it's not as useful. In our current environment, which is for the most part, maybe not perfectly safe, but significantly safer than the environment that we evolved and adapted to, we don't need that constant sense of vigilance. If anything, we need to kind of, you know, turn it down a notch and turn the volume up on our ability to see what's going right in our lives. So with meditation, examples of that can be sitting for 10 minutes, just watching your thoughts come and go. Uh, meditation can mean watching your breath, counting your breaths. Meditation can mean putting on a guided meditation tape. Meditation can be washing the dishes. Looking at gratitude, examples of that, writing down three things every day that you're grateful for. Things that you don't want to take for granted anymore. Uh, it's saying thank you to someone who's done something kind for you. The next one, acts of kindness. Every time you do something nice for another human being, and this isn't just Santa Claus talking, it actually makes you feel good. They've mapped this in the human brain. It, it lights up the pleasure centers of our mind. So any random act of kindness that you can engage in can actually be deemed selfish because it will make you feel good. Exercise is another one. So this is actually part of where I was coming from when I said, you know, emotional fitness, physical fitness, it's all really one and the same. But when you move your body, it helps your brain. Every time you exercise, you improve your ability to develop happiness. Uh, getting enough sleep. This one is huge. And obviously with sleep, you can't really control it. I know because as a recovering insomniac, I've tried, but you can influence it. So you can develop practices around having soothing rituals before you go to sleep. Um, you can make it a point to have resting uh, practices so that if you can't get to sleep, then at the very least, uh, you can rest. And then the final one, which, you know, I'm into nutrition, eating well. You know, eating food that feeds your body. 
And if you're hearing the random meowing sound, that was my cat. So <laughs> sorry about that. Okay, so these are examples of the kinds of practices that help you build emotional fitness. Does that mean, therefore, that if you're in a toxic environment, that you can just meditate your problems away? Is that what that means? I hope not. I would never want to say to someone who was in an abusive relationship, well, honey, you know, just write down the things that you're grateful for. You'll be fine. Does it mean that you have to stay in a toxic job? I sure hope not. I would never want to say to someone, well, I mean, I get that your job is stealing the life out of you, but, you know, if you just meditated enough, maybe go to the gym or something. You'll feel so much better. Or, you know, maybe not even an abusive relationship. Maybe just one that doesn't serve you, whether it's a romantic partner that you partnership that's clearly dissolving or a friendship that's clearly no longer serving either person. I would never want to say to anyone, hey, tough cookies, be grateful for what you got. It's just that most of the time, I think we mistakenly assume that the external circumstances are everything. We assume that if there's anything wrong with our lives, we need to fix that first, and then that will inadvertently make us feel more emotionally resilient and happy and, you know, whatever. But it's just not true. It has to go the other way around. So when we're talking about emotional fitness, for a long time, I think we've told ourselves, if, as long as we can just create a world around us, if I could just make my partner do the right thing, if I could just make my boss stop doing the things that they're doing, if I could just get the right job, if I could just get the whatever, if I could just find the right guy, if I could just get pregnant, if I could just find a nanny, because <laughs> once you get pregnant, woo, you realize how much work is involved. But it's never true. The external stuff, it might help for a little while, but it's always the internal that you have to start with. So, in building emotional fitness, the practices that I'm talking about right now are, those are the things that are going to make for, uh, it's sort of like when you go and you, you practice running. Just running isn't going to make you immediately a better soccer player. You also have to play soccer. But when you're training those muscles, you're positioning yourself such that you might be better able to respond as you want to come game time. But there is a game that you have to play, and the game that we're talking about here is your life. If you want to change the external, like if you're looking at your life and you're thinking, my God, I just, I'm so unhappy. You probably do need to change some things. Start with these practices. This is especially true, by the way, of highly sensitive people. Part of the reason I'm talking about this topic, because this topic I think applies to everyone, highly sensitive, introverted, extroverted, not sensitive at all, doesn't matter. Anyone could benefit from these practices. But I think highly sensitive people in some ways are advantaged in that their capacity for bullshit is, on the whole, a lot smaller. Their systems can't tolerate complacency if being complacent means misery. Our systems won't take it. And you'll see this in the research that Elaine Aaron talks about too. They're just, they're unwilling to tolerate relationships that don't serve them. They tend to be much more aggravated by jobs that don't serve them. 
And because they're more aggravated, they're also more likely to act. This is our, I wouldn't call it a superpower, but it's, it's a gift. It, it hurts like hell. It doesn't feel good to be chafing against misery more often than the average person or to seemingly feel like you have less capacity to withstand discomfort. But it is a gift because it forces action much sooner and in so doing forces us into lives that serve us faster. So how does this all play out you know, in the world of trying to develop a really robust and happy life? Well, to start with, whatever the circumstances of your life, if you can develop these practices as a sort of routine, it's the equivalent of taking a pair of glasses off and wiping them clean so that you can see clearly. It also is the equivalent, as I've mentioned before, of running laps so that come game time you can really get in there and go play. But now, fine, you've run your laps, you've practiced your meditation, you've eaten your Wheaties, you've done all of the things and you're feeling as strong as you possibly could, or at least feeling stronger than you were, but you look around and now you're starting to ask some questions. You have just enough clarity and capacity to say to yourself, you know, I'm doing all of this stuff, but I'm only, the only real satisfaction I'm getting out of it is that I'm just getting fueled enough to survive another day. Why is it so damn hard? And maybe you look around and you realize, well, I hate my job and my relationship is falling apart and I don't even like where I live. I don't like how I'm living. Well, now you're primed to really start making some changes, but this is where courage comes in because it requires tremendous courage. Human beings are built for routine. We like routines. It makes us feel safe. We, the, it's part of where the, the phrase, you know, the devil you know is better than the devil you don't. It's the, one of my favorite phrases that, uh, you know, uh, how, would, how would you describe this gentleman? Um, a mind-body therapist had talked to me and said, you know, the best thing about being a human is that you can adapt to just about anything. The worst part about being a human is that you can adapt to just about anything which is to say we're just as capable of adapting to really tough circumstances when it's a requirement and that's therefore good but we're also capable of adapting when it might be better for us not to adapt but instead to change so that brings us to this idea of okay you know what are you gonna do about your life now I got into a conversation pretty recently this was in, within the last week uh, it was with a guy who evidently is just starting to wake up from, at least emotionally speaking, a, a four-year slumber. He's been working really hard on a job that he works with his, with his family. It's a family industry. And it takes a lot out of him, so much so that it seems to have, you know, wiped out his, according to him, his ability to have a social life. And he's starting to realize, you know, maybe life is about more than this. And so as I'm talking to him about it, and it's like, okay, well, here, what are your options? What are your resources? And all I got in return were all of the reasons why nothing could be done. I can't because I can't leave my house because blah, blah, blah. And I can't uh, set, put together a schedule because of blah, blah, blah. And I can't, be, do, I can't leave because, well, my family. And I can't change my behaviors because blah, blah, blah. And so on and so forth. So he weaved a story for me 
that basically said, well, I, re I, I know I probably need more than what I have, but, you know, this is my lot in life and I'm just going to suck it up. And he said, and it's worth it, though. I mean, it's, it's, it's worth the, the cost for what I get. And I said, well, what are you going to get? He said, well, I'm going to probably be able to retire at 40. And I stared at him. I said, okay, well, great, but what are you going to do once you're retired? Like, okay, so if I were to wave a magic wand right now, and you're, you're retired, you have all the money you need, you've, hitched your, you've hit your landmark, the landmark you needed to hit to feel like you were ready to retire. What are you going to do with your time? And he said, whatever I wanted. I was like, great, <laughs> what do you want? What do you want to do? And he didn't have an answer. He, he was evasive and he, I don't know, I, I mean, I, I would pamper my wife and children. Uh, side note, he doesn't, I mean, I think he, had, oh, which actually brings me to a relationship he talked about, which sounded like it was all kinds of complicated and miserable and also sounded a bit like, well, I can't leave because that would be dishonorable and, blah, blah, blah. and in my mind I'm thinking, oh my dear God, you poor sap. Um, which is not to say that there's no honor in staying in a relationship. That, I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying, though, that at the end of the day, he had no idea. And this is how we all seem to live. Like, this is how we operate. And it's not just this guy. And believe me, I, I can't judge him. There have been many times in my life where I've created stories about how I can't get out of the situation that I'm in. And I've created a narrative of, I'm stuck, I can't get out. And even now, as I'm sitting here talking in a podcast, that you know, even now, I'm sure I have huge blind spots that are keeping me from thriving to the best of my abilities. And we all have blind spots. So I'm not trying to say that this poor, you know, oh my god, this, this schmuck doesn't know what he's doing. He was just a more blatant example uh, for me, when I was staring at him talking about his situation, it seemed so much more intense. So it was a great distilled example of what human beings are capable of doing to themselves. So in listening to him talk, I, I eventually got to a place where I'm just like, I'm not going to keep challenging this guy. He is so not ready to hear. I mean, he's not ready to make any moves. And I think really part of it too is that you know, I, I think he missed that there's, it's the leap, the willingness to take a leap, the willingness and the courage to be disliked, to do things that other people won't like for your own benefit. And I don't mean to other people's detriment or like you're going out to try and hurt people. I, I only mean the willingness to get out there and say, this is who I am and I am unwilling to compromise, compromise on that. It's a trap we often find ourselves in, that a trap of, well, I can't because, or I'll be happy when. So what is it that allows for people to wake up, number one, and realize, oh, this isn't working, which this guy, I think, on some level is starting to do, but then go to the next step and say, okay, well, it's not working and there's got to be a way out. I mean, there just has to be. For whatever reason, as I was writing through some of the notes on this, one of the first things that came to my mind was uh, the story of well, Plato's cave. So it's a philosophical story. A bunch of people are, are in a cave, and they're tied down, and they're facing the cave wall. Behind them, and unbeknownst to all of them, there's a cave entryway. The sun is shining through, and there are people if you want to say so, like there are figures, and they're making little shadow puppets, you know, like they're 
making shadows with, um, sort of like how we would with light bulbs, except that it's the sunlight beaming in. And all of these people staring at the cave wall think that what they're staring at is life. They say to themselves, oh, this is all there is. Let's just sit down and be okay with that. But one person, getting curious, tries to look behind him and sees a light and sees that there are figures making shadow puppets. And so, you know, with tremendous effort and some injury, he, find, he gets out of this situation. He unchains himself from the chair and he goes out into the world. And he's got scrapes and bruises from all of his, you know, from his attempt. And once he gets out there, he realizes, oh my god, oh my god, look how beautiful. There's a whole world out here. He couldn't possibly imagine staying there by himself. So he goes back into the cave, telling all of the people within, guys, you have no idea what you're missing. There's a whole world out there. You think you've seen some stuff. You haven't seen shit. <laughs> oh my god, follow me. But instead of following him, they kill him. And then they go back to sitting. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, happy people are killed, but I do think that as, a, you know, we humans have a tendency to shoot down people who have found something beautiful, who have found a unique way of living their life, instead of following their path and saying, oh, well, that seems cool. Why don't I try that? We often try and say, oh, well, it must be easy, you know, easy for you to do because of blah, 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 blah. Or, oh my God, you're so selfish. How could you do that? But it's not selfish. It's self-interest, sure, you know, to take care of yourself and to go out there and try and live your life on your own terms. It's definitely uh, self-interest, but I don't think it's selfish. And I'm fascinated by this point in time when people make these giant leaps. It's part of the reason that I'm so enamored with Elizabeth Gilbert when she talks about her story of leaving a marriage that took tremendous effort to get out of. And there have been times in my life when I've had to wiggle out and, you know, untangle things that were clearly not serving me and the people around me. And it hurts. It's not fun. You know, it, it sounds good after the fact when you're telling the story, but in the midst of it, it's brutal and it's hard. And it's, and it, again, it hurts. So this is actually why when I talk, started this conversation, I didn't want to make it just on happiness because really all of the fighting that I'm doing in my current circumstances to get out of a challenging situation, on some level, it's because I want to be happier, but in a more real, like in a more tangible way, it's not even that I want more happiness. I want to feel more like myself. I'm looking around and I'm saying, how can I, to the best of my ability, create a life that looks like me? You know, who am I? What are my values? What matters to me? And how can I make my life look like that? And it's about sort of cleaning house, you know, just like with the life-changing magic of tidying up, how she's, you know, look around in your, ho your home and every single belonging, ask yourself, does this bring me joy? And if it does, keep it. But if it doesn't, get rid of it. It's just taking up energy and space. Well, we can do that with our lives, with every facet of our lives. We can go out there and we can say, okay, this job, does it bring me joy? No. Okay, well, we can get rid of it. We, not Maybe not immediately, maybe it takes a little bit of time, but you can leave. You can make it a priority 
to start putting out your resume, to start networking with other people, to get out of your current job. You can go back to school and learn a whole new trade if you want. It requires tremendous effort and it requires sacrifice, but it is not impossible to do. Some people keep doing this over and over. And I, I think personally, it's one of those things where the more you do it, the better you get at it. And it's almost like the more you do it, the more you do it. So in my case, the first time that I made a big leap, it, you know, I'm in my early 20s and I left a relationship that was cozy and I was striking it out on my own. I mean, it's a nothing story. It's not that interesting, but it was hard emotionally for me to do. But once I did it, I realized, oh, wow, I mean, that was painful, but it really wasn't all that bad, actually. And then several years later, it was, you know, I was at a job that was making me miserable and was sucking the life out of me. And I didn't even have a plan. I left that job. And, you know, by the grace of whatever, like, do you want to say grace of God or grace of the universe or whatever, you know, I, I found my way. And the more that I've done this, the more that I've continued to like to insist, no, I'm going to do it. I'm going to keep leaping. The easier it becomes and the bigger the leaps that I make. I don't think I'm special in this in any way, shape, or form. Uh, just the opposite. I think this is just me being a human. And from what I can tell, it's essential to cultivate this if what we're looking to have is something real if what we're looking to have is a life of wholehearted living. It's part of why one of my favorite quotes is from the book The Nightingale, and it's, I used to think I wanted to be loved and admired. Now I just think I would like to be known. Well, you can't be known if you don't know yourself, or if you're not at least willing to ask some tough questions. And it's hard to ask those tough questions if you haven't built up the muscle groups for it. So what I would like to impart to all of you, dear listeners, you know, are you, do you have some daily anchors? This is what uh, Natalie Kagan talks about in terms of building resilience. Daily anchors like meditation or exercise or yoga or journaling or whatever. You know, what are your daily anchors that ground you enough so that you can hear yourself think? Find those daily anchors and practice them with the same vigilance that you practice breathing. You know, don't compromise on those practices because those are going to help build and cultivate capacity. And the more capacity you have, the more capable you will be of seeing what needs to change in your life and what could stand to stay. This is essential for any human, but I think it's imperative in particular for highly sensitive people. We have, as I think a good friend of mine said, a very short karmic leash. When we do something wrong, our systems tell us so. We are a courageous bunch. I think in some ways, because our systems tend to be so sensitive, we've had to build these muscle groups much sooner. So it's a little bit like how, you know, that pudgy kid in high school or maybe junior high, and then they worked really hard to get fit. And then they're just, they find it pretty easy to stay fit for the rest of their lives. And it's like, well, yeah, because they had to learn the skill really young versus the person who was just naturally thin and never had to worry about what they ate. And then they suddenly turn 40 and they're like, ah, I don't know how to exercise or eat well. This is so hard. It's the same concept. I think highly sensitive people have, because their systems are so easily agitated, they've had to sort of build a muscle group for emotional resilience all their lives. And so they're 
positioned well to be able to engage with life in this unique way. The ability to have capacity and to constantly make really courageous moves. But I'd love to hear from you. I mean, do you, how do you feel about, do you feel like you personally have emotional fitness? Uh, do, you, do you bounce back quickly? Or do you find that it's actually challenging? You know, if, if you're an introvert or a highly sensitive person, do you actually feel like it's harder for you to make changes or is it easier? Love to hear from you. Um, and if ever you want to send me an email, like, please go to my website. It is www.thehealthysensitive.com. Love to see it. Got blog posts in there as well. Uh, and yeah, I just, I, I hope you have a fabulous day and look forward to hearing any of your comments should you have them. Take good care.